Ezekiel chapter 19 tonight. This actually, this little chapter of 14 verses is the completion of a series of chapters, chapters 12 through 19. We began a few weeks back in chapter 12. And, and if you recall, this was sort of um, the, the warnings given. Uh, Ezekiel was giving the warnings about what was coming to J Jerusalem, to Judea, to the remaining Jews that were left there. Remember, Ezekiel was in the second deportation. Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were in the first deportation, but the last one's coming uh, under the reign of Zedekiah. Ezekiel's given his prophecy from Babylon, but the word would get back to Jerusalem about the warnings given by Ezekiel the prophet. So interesting stuff that Ezekiel's been saying um, and this chapter is the final warning, and then he's going to shift gears uh, once we get into chapter 20. So let's finish up this series from 12 to 19, the various warnings given to Judah, Jerusalem. Um, and one thing that you might also kind of put as a subtitle uh, to this area of the Bible is the futility of, you know, misguided uh, optimism, uh, or you could say the futility of false optimism. Um, that's something that um, the Jews were doing. They were saying, that's gonna be great. It's gonna be okay. Everything's gonna work out. Um, but they were really contrary to what the Lord was saying. Uh, the Lord was saying, it's not gonna work out. Um, oh, don't be such a Debbie Downer. Don't be such a, you know, nervous Nelly. Uh, like, like, come on, these prophets would say, Ezekiel, Jeremiah, Isaiah, you guys are a bunch of depressing dudes. We don't like you and we don't wanna hear what you have to say, but they're still speaking the truth. We have to worry a little bit about that today because it's popular today to, to uh, only talk about the fluffy stuff. You know, the stuff that's happy, the stuff that's fun, the stuff that makes me feel good. But I believe that when you hear from the Lord, sometimes it does make you feel good. And there's so much good about the Lord, it's not even funny. But there's also righteousness and holiness and wrath and judgment uh, these are things the Bible talks about, God. And if you don't talk about those things, uh, you're not talking about the whole Bible. Um, so that's why we have to kind of stick with it and hear out Ezekiel and not, not give in to this, this problem that the people had in those days of, you know, this futility of false optimism. Um, I always joke around and, you know, I tell you guys about my basketball team in high school, the losingest team in America. And they say, this is the one you're gonna win. And we're like, no, it's not. We, we were realists. We were like, nope, nope, we're gonna lose again and again. And uh, finally we broke that three year losing streak uh, in basketball. Uh, but I got cut from the team before uh, we had the win. <laughs> so I got, I got cut from the losingest team in basketball history in the United States. But be that as it may, I'm not a false optimist. I knew that uh, they kept saying, you know, Brett, don't, don't go out to bat for basketball again this year, you know. They wanted me to wrestle, but I didn't want to wrestle. I didn't like the idea of mats and sweating out with a bunch of guys on a mat. I just didn't like that idea. Um, uh, but, um, but all that to say, the Jews were saying, nope, uh, things are gonna be wonderful. Uh, you know, and, and uh, you know, you're good and people like you and this whole kind of talk yourself into everything's awesome. Uh, that's, what, that's what I hear pastors. You're gonna be victorious, victorious living. Uh, and all this stuff. And I always kind of crack up, you know, if you listen to Joel Osteen all about his victorious living, like Jesus would have failed all those sermons. Jesus, you know, when I say failed, I say that derogatorily because Jesus, did he live victorious? Well, we know he did, 
But he did it by losing all his friends, being despised and rejected, hated and left alone and crucified on a cross. Like, like that's, not, that's not really what, you know, I hear these preachers preaching. They're, they're talking about, you know, material possessions and wealth, uh, healthy, wealthy and wise, you know, and that's what you're gonna get. Sometimes that doesn't work out for people. Sometimes you're Corey Ten Boom who has to go into horrible things of the Holocaust of World War II and the concentration camps of Germany. That, that's a believer in Jesus who suffered horribly. Was she bad? Is that why she went through those things? No. No, people suffer and people go through hard things and we need to have both sides. Sometimes people suffer, sometimes people are popular and live victoriously, but the Lord's gonna work it all out in the end. That's the way we know it all works out. So we'll see that here in Ezekiel. Uh, So kind of keep that tucked away as we go through this chapter. He says, moreover, verse one, chapter 19, take thou up a lamentation for the princes of Israel. Um, This, by the way, is the first of five laments that are coming here uh, in these chapters, these coming chapters. So some some connect chapter 19 with the future chapters. Uh, Chapter 26 is a lament, uh, chapter 27, 28, uh, and 32. Those are the the five laments. Uh, But this is a sort of a poem or a dirge, as it's called. And it even in the Hebrew kind of has meter and rhyme. Uh, which we miss in the English translation. So you gotta understand that does make chapter 19 sort of pop out if you're reading the Hebrew Bible. Like, oh, this is kind of a sort of a poem dirge thing. And it's meant to be sort of sad and depressing. Um, So that's, that's what this is all about. So he says, write a lamentation for the princes of Israel. Who are the princes? We've talked about this in previous studies. It's the leaders and the kings of Israel specifically. Um, If you recall, Ezekiel doesn't ever call any of them kings. Um, And I think it's because by this time, these are all leaders that are sort of vassal kings of Babylon. And so Ezekiel never really acknowledges, like say, Zedekiah as a legitimate king. He calls him one of the princes, even though everybody else was calling him a king. Ezekiel seems to call these kings princes, not really willing to give them that king delineation. So that's something you gotta kind of note. And this gets a little bit cryptic until you know some of the other Bible passages. But he's now gonna talk about the the various kings uh, during the times of Babylonian invasion. Let's let's read. Verse two. So we got a lamentation for for the kings or the princes of Israel and say, what is thy mother? A lioness. She lay down among lions. She nourishes uh, her whelps or cubs among young lions. She brought up one of her whelps. It became a young lion and it learned to catch the prey and it devoured men. The nations also heard of him. He was taken in their pit and they brought him with chains into the land of Egypt. Okay, now this is interesting. Remember, the Northern 10 tribes have been long gone, taken by who, anybody? The Assyrians, that's correct. Uh, Many, many years earlier, the Assyrians took out the Northern 10 tribes. Now the Southern tribe was called Judah. And does anybody remember the sign or the ensign, the flag of the tribe of Judah? The lion. Do you know who's gonna be the most famous that would uh, sort of come from the tribe of Judah? Jesus, who's called the lion of the tribe of Judah. Are you guys with me here? 
So this idea of the lion, the Jews would have known right away what's being talked about here because of their familiarity, but, but we're kind of like, oh, what's this, a lion and it's whelp and all this stuff. This is speaking of Judah, which is the remaining southern part of Israel. The Assyrians took off the 10 northern tribes, but we got the, the tribe of Judah, or the southern two tribes now called Judah. And they're called the lion uh, of, of Judah. And there's a, there's a whelp, a young lion that comes and brings forth one of her young lions. And it's speaking of a specific king during this time period where the Babylonians were you know, besieging uh, Judah. Um, but we also know which one we're talking about because of what happened. Um, if you recall, when we read about this in 2 Kings 23, we read about this, uh, this actually what happened. Do you remember there was a king named Jehoahaz and he was one of the young lions of the tribe of Judah or from that region that's being referred to here because he was brutal. And if you recall, he went and was doing battle against other nations, just like it says here, he devoured men this cub of the tribe of Judah. But do you remember where um, Jehoahaz uh, decided to go to get some help? He went down to Egypt. And that's what it says here. They brought him down with chains into the land of Egypt. And that's what happened to Jehoahaz. So we know that this is really in sort of a poetic form, Ezekiel saying, okay, Judah, you think you're all that great? Um, you've got these lion, lions that are, you know, or lionesses that are giving cubs of princes or kings. Um, your first king that we're going to talk about is this guy Jehoiaz, 2 Kings 23, um, is what we're kind of talking about there. Um, now, all that to say, um, the lion of the tribe of Judah, that was first brought up, by the way, in Genesis 49, 9 when Jacob was passing out the blessings and curses to the 12 tribes of Israel. And Judah got that delineation of the lion. Uh, uh, and that's what, why, why we know that we're talking about Judah here and the king of Judah, Jehoiaz. So the first one is um, Israel as a lioness. And we're gonna see two of her cubs. The first cub, Jehoiaz. Uh, and this is what would happen. He would be taken in, in the captivity by the Egyptians, uh, just like it says here. But the second cub is another king that would come and we read about him in verse five. Now, when she saw that she had waited and her hope was lost, then she took another of her whelps, another cub and made him a young lion. Now we're talking about another king of Judah. And he went, verse six, up and down among the lions and he became a young lion and learned to catch a prey and devoured men. And he knew their desolate palaces and he laid waste their cities and their land was desolate and the fullness were, uh, thereof by the noise of his roaring. Then the nation set against him on every side from the provinces and spread their net over him and he was taken in their pit and they put him in ward in chains and brought him to the king of Babylon. They brought him into the holds that his voice should no more be heard upon the mountains of Israel." The next king that we are talking about, the cub of the lionesses, uh, is the, none other than Jehoiachin. We've talked about him at length uh, in previous studies. And if you know the story of 2 Kings, you know the, the, the way this rolls. It's exactly what happens. Jehoiachin, mighty for sure, 2 Kings chapter 24 tells us the story, but he would be dragged off with, a, with, a, um, with chains. Um, notice there's a couple things about this, by the way. Um, 
You've got in verse nine, they put him in ward and in chains. Some of your margins uh, reckon that word chain as hooks. Does anybody have that in your margin? Uh, yeah, a lot of you. The reason why is the Hebrew word is hooks. And um, in the King James in 1611, when they were translating to the English there, they thought it'd probably be better to have chains because you get bound up in chains. But we know historically that the, both the Assyrians and the Babylonians were famous for chaining people together, true, but they would also put hooks in their noses, like big fishing hooks and just shunk, and then they'd chain those together and they'd tie their hands behind their backs and they'd march people into captivity with a hook in their nose. Um, uh, sometimes that word hook is also translated as snare in the Bible. And there's an image, I'm not just trying to be gross by pointing this out, but this is the way Jehoiachin took it in the chin uh, with a hook, uh, sorry, uh, or probably in the nose, a hook in the nose. That's, that's a pretty gross image. Now, why does the Bible go into all that detail and talk about that? Because it does talk about that a lot if you've been with us through the Bible. What's the deal? Well, the Lord wants that imagery for you and me to see what sin does. Sin is a snare. In fact, the Bible actually tells us what the specific sin is that leads to the hook in the nose. Would you keep your finger here uh, in uh, our text in Ezekiel and go back with me to Proverbs. In Proverbs chapter 29, um, there's an interesting word that's using the same word, Hebrew word for snare or hook in the nose. Um, it's Proverbs 29, verse 25. This might just be the most definitive verse about this whole hook in the nose thing. It says here in Proverbs 29, 25, it says, the fear of man bringeth a snare or hook in the nose, but whoso putteth his trust in the Lord shall be safe. Man, that's something that I've got marked in my Bible because times haven't changed all that much. Even though this was thousands of years ago, what was the big deal with these people? They were afraid of what men might think of them or what men might do to them. Instead of having a healthy fear of the Lord, what's the Lord gonna do? And what does the Lord think about what I'm doing? So when you are standing there at work and they're telling you to call Bill, who's now Bethany, and you're supposed to call her a her when he's a really a him, right now you've got an interesting decision to make. And that decision has become really foggy for Christians today, but, but should, we, should we live a lie, even though scientifically and biologically and biblically, we know that the Lord created them male and female, did he create them? God calls them male and female. And I think we should go with what God calls them. And for people to say, yeah, but he thinks he's a she, and so you should accommodate that. Just be nice, Brett. I, I think that Christians are gonna be required in these days we're living to either choose to live the lie and say things that just aren't true or you're gonna say, you know what, um, as lovingly as I can, as kind-hearted as I can, you know, really, I, I can't do that. I, I'm a believer in what the Bible says and God creates them male and female and I'm not gonna play that game. I know that's a hard thing, and some of you, especially you young people, have been indoctrinated by your teachers at school. Um, you need to totally throw the stuff out the, out the window, what they told you. But go with what the Bible says. Go with what God says. 
and don't live the lie. That's one of the things the Lord's been showing me lately about as a pastor for a church in 2021, what do we need to be careful of? Not to live in the fear of men because the fear of men brings a hook in the nose. It's a snare. And you, you think you're being kind, you think you're being wise, you think you're being you know, neutral or whatever, but actually the fear of man, being afraid of what they might say about you or do to you, but they might fire me. They might call me a bigoted homophobic wacko or whatever, or they might call me worse things, a, a, a Trump supporter, that would be horrible. I, I can't do that, brother. That's the fear, fear of man. I'm not saying, I'm not saying anything political, you know, I'm saying biblical here. Uh, say the truth and speak the truth. I'm telling you this because I think this fear of, the, of man is becoming a bigger snare and we're, we're like fish in the, in, the, you know, in the river, just looking at the little lure and chomping at the, the hook. We're doing it. We're being lured in. And I don't think that the church even knows that it's a hook in the nose. Um, the fear of man brings a snare, but what is it that we are supposed to be according to Proverbs 29, 25? It says, but he put, that puts his trust in the Lord, Jehovah, shall be safe. These people are the example of this. Back to our text, what happens to this king, Jehoiachin? Jehoiachin, he, he's worried about what the Babylonians are gonna do and what the Egyptians are gonna do. And he's got the fear of man, but what does it do? It brings about a snare. He's the object lesson to what Proverbs 29, 25 is saying. But really the whole Bible gives us this imagery of the hook in the nose to remind us not to be given to the fear of man. I love Peter. You know, Peter was a guy who was totally afraid. Remember at the fire, he was warming himself by the enemy uh, when they were taking Jesus and trying him. And they said, you're one of them. I am not blankety blank. Remember that? He was a total chicken. I, I don't wanna be known as, before he's saying, I'll defend you, Lord, I'll, I'll save you. Uh, now he's running like a scared little kid. And, and, and Peter, this fearful guy, and then what happens? The Holy Ghost in Acts chapter two comes upon Peter. And he's a whole different dude. The same, you know, it says there in John 20, the, the disciples were assembled for fear of the Jews. There they were shaking in their sandals up in the upper room, thinking, oh no, the Sanhedrin might kill us like they killed Jesus. And they were shaking in their tennies. Jesus shows up and breathes on, on them and says, receive ye the Holy Ghost. And then Peter in Acts chapter two, they're waiting on the Holy Ghost to come upon them. And when the Holy Ghost comes upon them in Acts chapter two, suddenly Peter preaches this bold sermon and 3,000 people are saved in one day. And then the Sanhedrin, the same people that go to kill Jesus, they, they killed Jesus, the same guys, they came to Peter and James and John and said, you guys have turned the world upside down. Stop speaking this name, Jesus. Don't speak this name anymore. And now suddenly we see a very different Peter. He no longer is shaken in his sandals in the upper room, but he says this to them. In fact, let me just read this to you. This is Acts chapter uh, five. It says, the Sanhedrin said, did we not command you that you should not teach in the name of Jesus? And behold, you have filled Jerusalem with this teaching and intend to bring this man, Jesus, his blood upon our heads. And then, this is, this is Peter. And Peter and the other apostles answered and said, we ought to obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised up Jesus, whom you slew and hang on a, hung on a tree. Him hath God exalted with his right hand to be the prince, the savior, to give repentance to Israel and the forgiveness of sin. You see a little different, Peter? 
I mean, he says, you guys killed Jesus, the one who God sent to save Israel, and it's you're the ones, and we ought to obey God rather than men. Could you just remember that little phrase? Have it tucked away in the back of your head when they tell you you, you should say this or act a certain way or embrace this worldview that is anti-biblical, anti-God. Remember, we ought to obey God rather than men. Things haven't changed. Today is a day where you gotta do the right thing. And, and we've, I, I worry that we've been slipping on this little slippery slope, the church of Jesus Christ in, in modern days, where we've just kind of acquiesced over little things that almost don't even matter. But as they've compiled, as we, as we slip down the slippery slope, we've started to accept things as the church that God calls an abomination in the Bible. How did that happen? Just a little slippery slope that started. I'm gonna say, you know, in the last 30, 40 years, the church has been slipping pretty radically. I hope that we can, without being legalistic or brutal, because we still need to be gracious and loving, but be gracious and loving and also say, but we ought to obey God rather than man and not cave. I think this is something you should be praying about that the Lord will give you boldness. The wicked flee when no one's chasing them, the Bible says, but the righteous are what? Anybody? Bold as a lion. <laughs> I love that. Um, well, all that to say, old uh, Jehoiachin is the poster child of someone who was afraid of what men might do to him. And so he did the opposite of what God told him to do. And he ends up with a hook in the nose, a snare because of the fear of men. That's a, a pretty important uh, analogy. So in, in this little dirge, this poem, he starts with the, the imagery of two cubs. And those two cubs are Jehoiaz and Jehoiachin. But now he's gonna shift his analogy from cubs of lions to a vine once again. And this vine uh, that we're gonna read about uh, is, is kind of similar in the sense that it's not gonna do well, um, but it's not Jehoiachin, it's not Jehoiaz, it's the final king. Does anybody remember the name of the final king uh, before the 586 uh, invasion? Anybody? Zedekiah, that's right. So this is about Zed. Let's take a look here in verse 10, old Zed. Verse 10, thy mother is like a vine in thy blood, planted by the waters. She was fruitful and full of branches by reason of many waters. And she had strong rods for the scepters of them that bear rule. And her stature was exalted among the thick branches and she appeared in her height with the multitude of her branches. But she was plucked up in fury she was cast down to the ground and the east wind, does anybody remember what a, the, the east wind is a type of or speaking of, anybody? Yes, the Babylonian invasion coming from the east. That's always what this phrase east wind means with Ezekiel and Isaiah and Jeremiah. So he says, you know, it's plucked down to the ground and the east wind, the Babylonians and Nebuchadnezzar, the east wind dried up her fruit. Her strong rods were broken and withered. The fire consumed them and now she is planted in the wilderness in a dry and thirsty ground, and fire has gone out of a rod of her branches, which hath devoured her fruit, so that she hath no strong rod to be a scepter to rule. This is a lamentation, and shall be for a lamentation. Um, you know, it's interesting because um, you say, Brett, this is depressing, great. They're gonna end up with lamentation upon lamentation, and that's true. Um, but this, this, this whole thing of, these, of Judah with these three princes or kings, 
Zedekiah being the one that's gonna be where they're gonna actually, without the scepter. The word scepter there is a key part of this in verse 14. There's no strong rod to be a scepter to rule, which means the Jews will lose all power uh, of governing themselves whatsoever. They will be completely consumed by the Babylonian empire by the time Zed gets into power. That's what this is saying. So this would have been an extremely depressing end. You got the cubs that get wiped out and now you got the vineyard that gets plucked up and fruitless and planted in a dry desert. Uh, it's like picture a vine planted in a cracked dry desert. Say, like, good luck, hope you can grow. And that's the way they end this thing. We're, we're toast, we're gonna die. Lamentation. But one of the things when you find the Bible full of lamentation, you need to look for inspiration. Um, is there any hope can you and I muster up any truth that we can dig out of the word of God to give us hope? And I would say, yes. Isn't it interesting that the last tribe to be wiped out is, is Judah in this story, but where does the hope come for the, the future of Israel? From the lion of the tribe of Judah. Uh, the hope and the inspiration, of course, for the Jews would always be Jesus. Let me just read to you um, from Revelation chapter five. I love this. This is a great mention of that hope that they have. Um, it says here in Revelation chapter five, you kind of see this heavenly scene and the throne of God and all this stuff. And it says in Revelation 5, one, I saw in the right hand of him that sat on the throne, a book written within and on the backside sealed with seven seals. Now I'm not gonna go into this in depth, but this is the title deed to planet earth. And uh, who owns the earth? Who's able to open the seals? If you're able to open the seals, you can own the earth. That's the idea. So he says, I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the book and loose the seals thereof? And no man in heaven nor in earth, neither under the earth was able to open the book, neither to look thereon. And so I wept much because no man was found worthy to open and read the book, neither to look thereon. In other words, the world's toast because the seals are sealed and the title deed is done. And, and the point is, if you know your Bible, uh, who does the title deed to planet earth belong to right now at this current moment? Satan, he's called the prince of this world. He's called the God of this world. And so when John hears this, who's worthy to open the book? No one steps up and so he starts to weep. But then, verse five, and one of the elders said unto me, weep not, behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David hath prevailed to open the book and to loose the seven seals thereof. When you see lamentation in the Bible, you gotta look for the inspiration and the salvation that comes from Jesus. It's always there. You can always see the, the, the change or the difference uh, and I think that's such an important thing. I hope that you have a Jesus worldview because you know, if, if you keep your eyes stayed on the problem, what you're gonna find is um, just depression, lamentation, and, and you'll end on lamentation if that's all you focus on. But I, I love that you and I have a, a privilege and a, and a chance to do something very different. And that is um, to remember there's always a but not. A but not, should you say that in church? Yep. Just said it. Listen to this. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4, verse eight, he says, we are troubled on every side, yet not distressed. We are perplexed, but not in despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Cast down, but not destroyed. 
always bearing about in the body the dying of the Lord Jesus, that the life of Jesus might be made known in our body. For every Christian, there's a but not for every depression, for every lamentation. You gotta remember, there's always a but not. Are you perplexed? I don't know what to do. Don't be perplexed. So you might be perplexed, but not in despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Troubled on every side, but not distressed. There's always a but not for the believer. I hope you remember that. Look for the but not, look for Jesus in everything. So even though Ezekiel 19 ends on lamentation, we know salvation comes from the same tribe, from the lion of the tribe of Judah. I love that. Well, that brings us to chapter 20. Uh, and verse one of chapter 20, it, um, gives, it starts for us here the history of Israel's rebellion. And they're gonna, uh, you know, Ezekiel, by the word of the Lord, is gonna go back to the Israelis' beginnings and kind of remember, remind them of their rebellion. So it says in verse one, it came to pass in the seventh year, in the fifth month, the tenth day of the month, that the certain of the elders of Israel came to inquire of the Lord and sat before me. Now, can you imagine this? Um, who, who were these elders of Israel? Um, they were kind of the, you know, Orthodox Jews, if you would. They were the ones that probably had the fancy garb. They were wearing the clothes of authority. And they came to Ezekiel and they sat down. Ezekiel, we want to inquire of the Lord. What do you think Ezekiel's gonna tell them? These fancy dudes, the religious guys. Um, is Ezekiel nervous? What's God gonna say to these guys? Well, this is where it gets interesting. The religious guys come and sit down. Ezekiel, tell us a thing from God. And verse two, then came the word of the Lord unto me, Ezekiel saying, son of man, speak unto the elders of Israel and say unto them, thus saith the Lord God, are you come to inquire of me? As I live, saith the Lord God, I will not be inquired of by you. <laughs> Denied, <laughs> shut down. That's amazing, isn't it? The elders of Israel, these guys no doubt looked pious and religious. And um, in fact, I'm sure the people of the Jews were probably thinking, well, these guys are, this close to God, man. But when they come to Ezekiel, they're like, God's like, nope, I'm not, I don't even wanna talk to you. And then the Lord's gonna talk to them, but it's not gonna be uh, answering whatever their inquiry was gonna be. God's gonna tell them a thing or two. He's gonna give them peace of his mind. And when God gives you a peace of his mind, it's giant and it's huge and it's important. That's why God's gonna remind them of why he doesn't want to answer them of whatever question they might be bringing. Now keep this in mind, Christian. I have found that oftentimes in my own personal walk, when I'm going to the Lord and I have a question I'm asking, Lord, why? I wonder how many times the Lord's like, Brett, I'm not gonna answer that stupid question. You know when your teacher told you, there's no such thing as a stupid question. Well, as it turns out, the Bible says there are dumb questions. <laughs> These guys, they had a question and it was dumb. And I'll tell you why, because whatever the question, we never learned what the question is, by the way. But the reason we never learn is because their question didn't matter because there were so many other problems with these people and these, these elders of Israel that whatever their question was, it was a ridiculous point anyway. So when you come with your, Lord, I have an inquiry. I've got a question I want to ask you, Lord. Is he saying, I'm not gonna answer your question. Um, why would the Lord do that? Well, he's gonna give us a reason here in a second. And it usually has to do with just us rebelling against the Lord. It's like, we're wondering why this isn't happening when the answer is the Lord saying, yeah, forget that. You're rebelling against me and you're doing all kinds of sinful stuff. 
And, and the Lord's saying, I wanna answer your questions, but, but we gotta deal with the real issue first. Uh, you know, if you're into you know, counseling or sharing even on a non-professional level, one of the things that a wise counselor will start to learn very, very fast is people come with questions all the time, but the question never has to do with the real issue. Um, wise is the counselor who will kind of say, okay, you wanna talk to me about that? Okay, but what's the real issue here? What's really going on? Um, and it's so funny to see how um, people, they already know a lot of times what the issue really is. Oh, well, I'm not doing this and I'm doing that and I'm doing that, but I still wanna know what the answer is to this. And, and, and sometimes you and I as counselors, we need to be like the Lord and say, you know what, before we answer any of your questions, let's get to the real issue here and find out what the real problem is. I remember uh, this guy I was kind of discipling years and years ago. And we'd meet once a week and I would open up the word. And, and we, got, we had gone from, you know, uh, you know, DEFCON 5 to DEFCON 1. Like it was really cool to see what the Lord had done in this guy's life. He was a drug addict and he was, he was doing all kinds of sinful stuff and even was in trouble with the law and we had to get all that sorted out and straight. And it took several years, but, um, but it was really cool to see this guy. But he, he, he came with one more meeting that, that I remember like it was yesterday where he was saying, Brad, I, I just feel like the Lord's not speaking to me and I've, you know, I've done all this stuff and I've made so much you know, growth in my life. And we were talking, um, but the Lord just put it on my heart and this doesn't happen very often. Like, you know, I'm not acting like I'm mystical and you know, I hear the Lord audibly while I'm talking to you all the time. But this was one of those moments, the Lord said, he's still got issues that he's hiding. That's what the Lord told me. Like he, he, he looks squeaky clean, but he's still got issues. And so I said, dude, you know, I, I just really feel pressed to ask you, what are you hiding from the Lord right now? What are you still trying to pull off that, that you think you're, you know, you've cleaned up your life, you've gotten rid of this and that and the other. And I said, man, I commend you for that. But what is it that you're hanging on to from the old life that you're unwilling to give? And he just started weeping. And he said, oh, Brad, how'd you know? And I'm like, well, I just know these things. No, I didn't, I didn't say that. I didn't say that. But as it turns out, this is, you'll, you'll laugh at this, especially now um, since Oregon has legalized everything, but he had kept um, his little safety emergency joint. Like he got rid of all of his drugs. You know, he was, he was on all kinds of drugs, but he kept an emergency joint and, and he confessed, I've, I've kept the emergency joint on the mantle behind the vase, you know, on between the two books. And uh, I just keep it there just in case uh, I, I just needed it, you know. And, and the Lord had convinced him earlier that he needed to get rid of all drugs and, and start clean and sober and make his life separate from that. He knew that. God made that really clear to him. And what was even more amazing is the miraculous way God delivered him from everything from cocaine to uh, smoking weed to smoking cigarettes. The Lord delivered him from all that stuff. It was really kind of cool, but he kept his little emergency joint on the mantle just in case. And it was funny because does the Lord really care about that as much, uh, the joint itself? Uh, I'm not sure, but I do know the Lord cared about his heart holding back something that the Lord had made clear that he was supposed to let it go. And so uh, I gave him the instruction, go home, get the emergency joint and flush it down the toilet. And man, I, I know that seems like such a small thing to some of you, especially you Portlandia people. Um, but, <laughs> but, but he went home and did that. And, and sure enough, that burden that he had in his heart was lifted and the Lord did a really cool work in that thing. 
Um, almost always when somebody comes, I have a question for God and for you, Pastor Brett. What's the real question? That's the question you have to ask. Lord, what do you really wanna show me? Sometimes we have to put our own questions aside and say, Lord, we wanna know what you wanna to talk to us about. So these, <laughs> these elders of Israel, we have an inquiry. And the Lord says, I don't care. I will not be inquired of by you. Now, verse four is a little hard on the translation. It says, verse four, wilt thou judge them? Son of man, wilt thou judge them? Cause them to know the abominations of their fathers. Um, the, the, the idea here is, the word judge there, by the way, literally means in the Hebrew, presenting his judicial case. Um, it's like the Lord's rhetorically asked, Ezekiel, will you, will you present a case against these guys um, about their history? so that they can understand why I'm not gonna answer their inquiry. That's what, the, that's what he's saying. Present a legal case against these dudes. So the Lord says, here's what you're gonna say. Verse five, and say unto them, thus saith the Lord God, in the day when I chose Israel and lifted up mine hand unto the seed of the house of Jacob and made myself known unto them in the land of Egypt, when I lifted up mine hand unto them saying, I am the Lord your God. See here, the Lord says, in the day I chose you, you're my chosen people. You were chosen and you were chosen and blessed because of that. Even when you were slaves in Egypt, I chose you out of slavery. You know, um, it's, by the way, it's, it, we're in the same boat as Christians. Did you know you as a church, as, as, as Christian Gentiles, you're chosen? You know, um, the scriptures declare this. And by the way, in John uh, 15, we read, you know, uh, you have not chosen me, but I have chosen you. And he, there in the scriptures, the Lord says, and I have ordained you. I've set you apart, you know, ordained you uh, that you might bring forth much fruit. Um, so there's a link, by the way, between the chosen people of the Jews and the chosen church. Uh, but the Lord says, I chose you when you were down there in Egypt. You see, the first part of their history that he's gonna bring up is they're, uh, they're trying to survive in the land of Egypt. And he goes on in verse six and he says, in the day that I lift up my hand unto them to bring them forth of the land of Egypt unto the land that I espied for them flowing with milk and honey, which is the glory of all lands. Then said I unto them, cast ye away every man the abominations of his eyes and defile not yourselves with the idols of Egypt. I am the Lord your God or Jehovah your God. Question, did the Jews throw away all their idols from Egypt? No, they brought a bunch of them with them. And not only that, do you remember the story? Oh man, this, this, this is kind of, I think, a reference here to that story in Exodus chapter 32. Remember where Moses was up on Mount Sinai for a long time? They thought he was dead. So they said, Aaron, the number two guy, hey Aaron, make for us a golden calf like the ones we knew about in Egypt and we will worship it. And Aaron, feeling pressured for the people, took all their gold that they took from Egypt and they threw them in the fire. Well, Aaron fashioned a golden calf. When Moses came and said, what did you do, Aaron? Aaron said, uh, the people made me do it. And I threw the gold in the fire and poof, out came this calf. <laughs> Read the story, it's true. He says, I, I threw it in the fire and out came this calf. Like it just, no, he made it. It's funny how confession oftentimes is really, really weak. Out came this calf, and, and, then the, and then the people said, these be the gods that brought you up out of Egypt, the golden calf. And they worshiped and danced nakedly around this golden calf. And Moses comes down the hill and sees them dancing and partying at this golden calf. And, and the Lord said, man, 
the people, I, I tried to get them out of Egypt, but I couldn't get Egypt, Egypt out of the people. I wonder if that's true for us too. You know, the Lord wants to keep, get us out of the world. You know, we're not to be of this world. We're, we're, we're in this world, but not of this world. The Lord wants us to be not conformed to this world, but to be transformed by the renewing of our minds. He wants us to be different than the world. Are you different than the world or do you fit right in? Do people think you're a weirdo because you're a Christian? Now, I don't think that we should just act weird because we're Christians. I know Christians who do that and they think we're just sanctified and different. No, you're just weird. Uh, there's a lot of those. I'm talking about being different because of what the Bible tells us to be, you know, like the, that sets you apart. Well, all that to say, the Lord says, I wanted to get my people out of Egypt, but Egypt wouldn't come out of my people. Um, and so he says, man, you, you did forsake these. Uh, um, verse, verse six, in that day, I lift up my hand to them, bring them forth out of the land of Egypt in the land that I had spied. Isn't it amazing? The Lord scoped out the land flowing with milk and honey for them, found a place for them. How gracious. And then cast away the abominations, but they didn't do that. Verse, uh, verse seven, um, they continued to defile themselves. But the Lord says, don't you know, I am the Lord, your God. And you're doing this in, right in front of me is what he's saying. I saw it. Verse eight, but they rebelled against me and would not hearken unto me. And they did not every man cast away the abominations of their eyes, neither did they forsake the idols of Egypt. Then I said, I will pour out my fury upon them to accomplish mine anger against them in the midst of the land of Egypt. But I wrought for my name's sake. That is, he did something for his name's sake. The name of the Lord is merciful and he cares about his name's reputation. The Lord wants to be known in the world as merciful. So for my name's sake, the Lord says, verse nine, that it should not be polluted before the heathen among whom they were, in whose sight I made myself known unto them in bringing them forth out of the land of Egypt. Isn't that amazing? The Lord didn't bring them out of Egypt because they were awesome. He brought them out of the land of Egypt because his name is merciful and he didn't want the rest of the world to think of him as unmerciful. It's for his name's sake, that's interesting. But then it shifts from the Egyptian history to the wilderness wandering history right there in verse 10. Wherefore I caused them to go forth out of the land of Egypt and brought them into the wilderness. And I gave them my statutes and showed them my judgments, which if a man do, he shall even live in them. Moreover, I gave them my Sabbath to be a sign between me and them uh, that they might know that I am the Lord that sanctify them. But the house of Israel rebelled against me in the wilderness. They walked not in my statutes and they despised my judgments, which if a man do, he shall even live in them. And my Sabbaths, they greatly polluted. Then I said, I would pour out my fury upon them in the wilderness to consume them. But I wrought for my namesake that it should not be polluted before the heathen in whose sight I brought them out. Yet also I lifted up my hand unto them in the wilderness that I would not bring them into the land which I had given them flowing with milk and honey, which is the glory of all lands. Because they despised my judgments, walked not in my statutes, but polluted my Sabbaths, for their heart went after their idols. Nevertheless, mine eye spared them from destroying them. Neither did I make an end of them in the wilderness. Wow, it's amazing. It's of the Lord's mercies that were not consumed. And this story is just reminding these elders, you wanna inquire me, let me remind you of who you are 
And these guys are hearing this history lesson of the Jews and their rebellion. Um, but then it shifts from the Egypt story to the wilderness wandering story. Thirdly, uh, here in this chapter, goes to the coming into the land part of the story. Verse 18. But I said unto their children in the wilderness, walk ye not in the statutes of your fathers, neither observe their judgments, nor defile yourselves with their idols. I am the Lord your God. Walk in my statutes, keep my judgments, and do them. And hallow my Sabbaths, and they shall be a sign between me and you, that you may know that I am the Lord your God. Notwithstanding, the children rebelled against me. They walked not in my statutes, neither kept my judgments to do them, which if a man do, he shall even live in them. They polluted my Sabbaths. Then I said I would pour out my fury upon them to accomplish my anger against them in the wilderness. Nevertheless, I withdrew mine hand and wrought for my name's sake that it should be, uh, not be polluted in the sight of the heathen in whose sight I brought them forth. I lifted up mine hand unto them in the wilderness that I would scatter them among the heathen and disperse them through the countries because they had not executed my judgments but had despised my statutes and had polluted my Sabbaths and their eyes were after their father's idols. Wherefore I gave them also statutes that were not good and judgments whereby they should not live. And I polluted them in their own gifts in that they caused to pass through the fire all that openeth the womb that I might make them desolate to the end that they might know that I am the Lord. Interesting, the Lord he does something that might be a shocker. And some people have a hard time with verses 25 and 26, where the Lord's saying, you've done this and you've done that. And because of that, basically I'm gonna pollute you. I'm gonna mess you up with your own sins. Um, and, and you shouldn't be surprised at that because do you recall in Romans chapter one, the Lord, he's the same yesterday and today and forever. In Romans chapter one, remember those people that neither were thankful or gave glory to God, but were prideful in their own wise conceits. And they did all kinds of abominations, sins, Romans chapter one. And it says, so that God, what did he do? He'd eventually do what? He gave them over to their own lusts and their own abominable desires. God is a God who will give you over if you really want that. Now, some people think, well, God, if, if he's love, he'll save you. No, God is love. I like to, maybe this is not the best way to say it, but I like to call God the perfect gentleman. God does not force you to love him. God does not force you to follow him. He's given you and me and us something called free will. And the Jews had it, we have it. And the question is, how do you use it? But there's a point where God says, you know what? You're gonna use that free will, but my spirit will not always strive with man. There's a point of no return. And one of the things that we see throughout the Bible is a point where God says, you have got really what you want. You've gone the way you desire. And so I'm gonna give you over to that desire. It's a little bit like we see happen in Pharaoh. Pharaoh, it says he hardened his heart. He hardened his heart, he hardened his heart. Seven, nine times in the Exodus story, it says Pharaoh hardened his heart against the Lord. But then if you read the narrative of, his, of uh, Exodus, nine other times it says, and so the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart. What happened there? I think Pharaoh hardened his heart against the Lord where finally God says, okay, you want that, that way? I'm gonna give you over to your own desires, your own lust. He's a perfect gentleman. He'll let you go the way you wanna go. Um, it reminds me of when Joey was a little kid. Um, you know, he was always getting into 
you know, crashes and stuff. But even at like two, I remember, I don't know, he's like maybe two and a half or something. He could barely walk, but he could ride the little three-wheeler on the back deck. And the, the deck was, uh, I remember sitting in the summer of our house there, we had a deck. And on the one side of the deck, it was a big deck. And on the one side of the deck, there was this big like four foot drop off, maybe five feet. Um, and there was no handrail or anything. It was just the edge of a deck. And, uh, and, and on the other side, I hadn't done my yard maintenance in that area. It was off the side of the house. There was some big chunks of bark dust, you know, those big old bark chunks, but, but there was also bull thistles growing through the bark dust. So it was like a bunch of bull thistles and bark dust. And uh, anyway, I'm just sitting there sipping tea, watching my son in his diaper. He was a little towhead, Joey was. So he's in a little diaper with his blonde hair flowing in the wind as he's just racing around in circles on the deck you know, round, 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 round. But I noticed every lap, he would just get closer and closer to that deck over there, the edge. And I'm like, Joey, don't, don't go over there. If you get too close, you're gonna fall off the edge. And he just kind of looked at me and just pedaled harder. And pretty soon he's just skidding around that little three-wheeler. Remember the little big wheel, three-wheeler thing? So he's just ripping around, around, around. And man, I think he's just now taunting me. He's like, and then like the back wheels just barely. I'm like, Joey, if you go over, it's gonna hurt. There's thistles and you don't wanna. And he just kept it. Finally, as a loving father, Debbie would never do this. <laughs> I thought, you know what? He's gonna have to learn the hard way. He's gonna have to, I've, I've warned him like five times and he's just gonna have to learn. So I just sat there and watched him. He looked at me and he you know, just, just right. And sure enough, just as I had predicted as the loving father in heaven, I sat there and I watched, all of a sudden, he just disappeared. It was gone. And I saw this big puff of dust. And I kind of, you know, listened. You know that cry of a two and a half year old when they crash or hurt themselves? I listened. It was silent. I looked over. And then I kind of started to walk over. And as soon as I get over, I see Joey stand up and go, all right. <laughs> That's what he said. I was like, he had a blast. He loved every minute of it as he's picking out thistles out of his skin. He's like, that was awesome. Um, anyway, um, you know, sometimes the Lord will say, okay, okay, you wanna go off the deck? Uh, I'm gonna allow that. Uh, I'm gonna give you over to your bull thistles and your bark dust. Um, but I would warn you, uh, as the older you get, the more painful those little falls become. And the Lord, he tries to warn you in his word, don't do that. But these people, the, the Jews did that over and over and over again. The Lord warned them, but they just kind of did their own thing. Well, um, all that said, um, man, he, they said, he said, I'm gonna make you desolate. Uh, where were we? Verse 27. Therefore, son of man, speak unto the house of Israel and say unto them, thus saith the Lord God, yet in this your fathers have blasphemed me and that they have committed a trespass against me. For when I had brought them into the land, for the which I lifted up mine hand to give it to them. Then they saw every high hill and, and all the thick trees. And they offered there their sacrifices. And there they presented the provocation of their offering. There also they made their sweet savor and poured out their drink offerings. Then I said unto them, what is the high place whereunto you go? And the name thereof is called Bama unto this day. Huh, what's going on here? Well, we're talking about the high places. If you remember the groves of the high places were the places in Canaan or the promised land where the Jews did like the Canaanites and worship pagan deities at the high places. 
But there's something we miss here, and uh, you kind of have to do sort of an in-depth study if you want on, a, on the language side of things, because um, if you look up the word bama, it means high places. So in some ways, you kind of look at the Hebrew in verse 29, as I said to them, what is the high place? Where do you go? And the name of it's called the high place. And you say, what does that have to do with anything? Well, as it turns out, the word bama kind of has a root and it's the Lord saying it's, it's a special name of a high place. And the word has an implication linked to it means you're going nowhere. It's an interesting thing that, that the Hebrew text does. It's a little bit of a play on words actually that uh, Ezekiel is employing here under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. But just circle the word bama and it means kind of high place, but it also means you're going nowhere, which is where false gods and goddesses will take you, nowhere. Um, so Lord calls them out on that. Uh, verse 30, wherefore say unto the house of Israel, thus saith the Lord God, are, are you polluted after the manner of your fathers and commit ye whoredom after their abominations? For when you offer your gifts, when you make your sons to pass through the fire, you pollute yourselves with all, idol, all your idols even to this day. And shall I be inquired of by you, O house of Israel? As I live, saith the Lord God, I will not be inquired of you. See, the Lord ends this little thing about their whatever their inquiry was. He says, I'm not gonna be inquired of you because you're, you're playing this game of doing your idols and you're rebelling against me and then you're coming piously to the temple saying, we want to inquire of the Lord. They're playing games with God. They're doing all their sinful stuff on Monday through Friday and then on Sunday, uh, and Saturday, they're, they're uh, coming piously to the temple. Does, it, does that sound familiar? It happens even in the modern day church where we sort of play these games and we think, I'm going to inquire of the Lord and we're holy Joes on Sunday, but during the week we're partying down and doing sinful stuff and, and doing things that we know are not pleasing the Lord. And, and I, I wonder if there's a point where God says, you know what, I'm kind of done playing that game. I'm gonna give you over to your thing. I don't know about you, but that's probably one of the saddest things to see in the church of Jesus Christ. And I've been around the church since I was a little kid. And you see it where people play that game and sometimes they sort of pull it off for 10 years or 15 or 20 years. But there's a point where you can't play that game and you can't cover it up as much anymore. And pretty soon you're in no man's land. You don't really fit in with the church, but you also don't really fit in with the world. And you're wondering why you're miserable. Um, the, the answer is to repent break off your sins and follow the Lord and do what the Bible tells you to do. Not out of legalism, it's not a got to, it's a get to. You get to do what the Lord tells you to do. And, and it's like these people, like I put you in a land flowing with milk and honey, man, you guys could have prospered, you could have been blessed. But because they said, no, we're gonna do it our way, they ended up miserable with hooks in their noses. And so the Lord says, I'm not even gonna be inquired of by you. Well, um, now, he shifts gears from that, you know, all that discipline and, you know, saying, I'm, I'm not gonna be inquired of you, but I'm going to regather you. Now, this is where Ezekiel's gaze goes past the local situation there and he starts talking about things that are true both um, in the local application, but also it's a more, a more of a global application. And that's what we looked at on Sunday about the regathering of Israel after they would be scattered, the diaspora. Um, the, the, the scattering in verse 23 is both talking about um, the scattering that would happen, them leaving Jerusalem and being taken off to Babylon. And maybe even you could include Assyria uh, from the previous attacks. 
but it also is where he starts to explain. And, and you say, Brett, I don't know, there's a leap you're making here in chapter you know, 20 that I'm a little uncomfortable with of going from this local prophecy of these elders in, in Babylon to more of a global futuristic thing. Well, trust me, as we get further in Ezekiel, you're gonna see him leave this situation altogether. And pretty soon we're gonna be talking about the kingdom and the temple that's gonna be built in the kingdom and the millennial king. Like Ezekiel's gaze is, is at this point starting to focus not on Babylon and the Jews in 586, but he's starting to say, but the Jews are gonna be scattered all over the world. And there's gonna be a long time where they'll be scattered and lost, but I'm gonna regather my people. And that's the discussion we started on Sunday. We'll continue that throughout the rest of the book of Ezekiel. So verse 32, he says, and that which cometh into your mind shall not be at all what ye say, we will be as the heathen, as the families of the countries to serve wood and stone. Yet it says, verse 33, as I live, saith the Lord God, surely with a mighty hand, with a stretched out arm and with fury poured out, I will rule over you and I will bring you out from the people and will gather you out of the countries wherein you are scattered with a mighty hand and with a stretched out arm, with fury poured out and I will bring you into the wilderness of the people and there will I plead with you face to face like as I pleaded with your fathers in the wilderness, so uh, in the land of Egypt, so will I plead with you, saith the Lord God. And I will cause you to pass under the rod and I will bring you into the bond of the covenant. And I will purge out from among you the rebels and them that transgress against me. I will bring them forth out of the country where they sojourn and they shall not enter into the land of Israel and you shall know that I am the Lord. As for you, O house of Israel, thus saith the Lord God, Go ye, serve every one his idols, and hereafter also, if you will not hearken unto me, but pollute ye my holy name no more with your gifts and with your idols. The Lord said, yeah, you wanna go do this stuff? Go ahead, go ahead, knock yourselves out, is what the Lord's saying, but stop playing this game where you're coming to give your gifts to me at the altar and temples in Jerusalem um, when you're still worshiping other idols. Don't, don't play that game. Um, isn't this kind of what the Lord talked about the church at Laodicea, uh, Revelation chapter three, verse 14, where they were neither hot nor cold. The Lord says, go and worship your, he'd rather you be hot or cold, but lukewarm, he says, I'll spew you out of my mouth. Um, these people were sort of mediocre. They were worshiping idols, but they were also sort of doing temple worship. And they were trying to do this combo thing. And the Lord says, I'm gonna spew, spew, vomit, literally is the translation. Um, he says, knock that off. Um, so um, that's interesting because um, sometimes I, I do believe there's a heart here too. I, I don't wanna miss this where the Lord says, go do it. But it's also, remember the, the purpose for the destruction of the flesh that you might be saved in the end? Sometimes I think the Lord turns you over to say, okay, hopefully this, this will bring you to a point of total brokenness um, so that you will repent. Remember the guy in 1 Corinthians 5 that were, they were, the church was supposed to deliver unto Satan for the destruction of his flesh. Why? So like, let him go do all the sinful stuff so that hopefully he'll, he'll learn. It's what my dad did, by the way, to keep me from smoking cigarettes. When I was five years old, he's, he, my dad at one of our family devotions said, kids, um, if you ever wanna smoke cigarettes, don't do it behind our backs. I'll support you in that. He said, if you wanna smoke cigarettes, which back in, in when I was five years old, uh, everybody was smoking cigarettes, it was cool. Although I've heard that smoking cigarettes is on the rise with COVID and everything. People are smoking a lot more again. But, um, 
But, uh, but my dad said that to me and my sisters. Now my sisters were smart and they said, Brett, don't, do, don't, don't take him up on that. He doesn't mean that. Um, but I thought it was cool. I remember seeing guys in the movies and cowboys smoking. And I was like, I wanna smoke cigarettes. My dad just said, he'll help me out. So I said, dad, I wanna smoke. He said, okay, next Saturday. Um, so I was all excited. We got in the Ford F-150 and we drove down to the little corner store and my dad went into the store and got a pack of camels. <laughs> and, uh, and he brings it out to the truck with a lighter and, and I was like, I can't believe it. Dad and I are gonna smoke cigarettes. This is awesome. And he literally pulled the truck off the side of the road and he said, okay, Brett, now here, and he, he lights it up. And, and I think he even took a little puff and he said, okay, here you go. Here you go. And, I, and I didn't know how to smoke. So I put the cigarette in my mouth and I kind of blew out, you know, like I thought that's what you're supposed to do. Um, but my dad's like, no, 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 no. You don't blow out. What you need to do is get all your air out of your lungs like this. And then, Take this cigarette and you breathe in slowly as long as you can. <laughs> true story, this is true. Um, I did just that, because I was so excited. I, what I wanted to do is like, you know, Clint Eastwood, when he had the two lines of smoke coming out of his nostrils, I was like, that's what I'm gonna do. As soon as I have smoke, I'm gonna go, hmm. I thought this was gonna be so great. Five years old, you know. So I take this huge drag on this cigarette and you guessed it, I barfed all over my dad's truck. I literally threw up. Uh, that, there was no smoke coming out my nostrils. It was, it was something else. But it, I kind of got my dad back because he had to clean up barf in his truck. So. But you know what's funny about that is I never touched another cigarette ever again after that day. It, his, his plan worked. Uh, he was delivering me unto Satan for the destruction of my flesh so that I wouldn't want to smoke cigarettes as an adult. Uh, to this day, it makes me sick even thinking about it. So that's what the Lord's saying. Go and, go and knock yourselves out. Go worship these idols, see what they do for you. And, but don't be you know, offering your gifts at the altar. Verse 40, for in mine holy mountain, in the mountain of the height of Israel, saith the Lord God, there shall all the house of Israel, all of them in the land serve me. There will I accept them. There will I require your offerings and the first fruits of your oblations with all your holy things. So in, in the, the last section of this, we're talking about future blessings. Um, and I believe this might just be his gaze looking at the millennial kingdom because we're never really gonna see the Jews in history do this, what we're about to read in verses 40 to the end of the chapter. But I believe this is gonna be in its full, fullness seen uh, during the millennial kingdom when Christ comes with the Jews. So let's, let's he says, I'll, I'll accept your offerings. Verse 41, I, I will accept with your, uh, you with your sweet savor. Um, when I bring you out from the people and gather you out of the countries wherein you have been scattered and I will be sanctified in you before the heathen. And you shall know that I am the Lord when I shall bring you in the land of Israel in the country for which I have lifted mine hand to give it to your fathers. And there shall you remember your ways and all your doings wherein you shall have been defiled. And you shall loathe yourselves in your own sight for all the evils that you have committed. When, when the Jews see Jesus, they're gonna say, where did you get the wounds? And Jesus will say, I received these wounds in the house of my friends. Like the Jews are gonna be stunned at what they missed in the millennial kingdom. And when they see Jesus, they're gonna be shocked. Uh, Zechariah, the prophet, talks about that. That's here what he's saying. You'll loathe yourselves in your own sight for all the stuff you've done. 
Verse 44, and you shall know that I am the Lord when I have wrought with you for my name's sake, not according to your wicked ways nor according to your corrupt doings, O ye house of Israel, saith Lord God. Why am I gonna bless you in the millennial kingdom? Because I'm merciful for my name's sake is what he's saying. Verse 45, moreover, the word of the Lord came unto me saying, son of man, set thy face toward the south and drop thy word toward the south and prophesy against the forest of the south field and say to the forest of the south, hear the word of the Lord, thus saith the Lord God, behold, I will kindle a fire in thee and it shall devour every green tree in thee and every dry tree. The flaming flame shall not be quenched and all faces from the south to the north shall be burned therein. Um, by the way, this is speaking of specifically the Negev desert south of Jerusalem. Um, and um, this is all part of um, um, what his plan will be in judgment as Jerusalem will be crushed, but the Negev desert will also be flamed and burned. Verse 48, and all the flesh shall see that I, the Lord, have kindled it and it shall not be quenched. Then said I, ah, oh, Lord God, they say of me, doth he not speak in parables? <laughs> Do you remember what, why would Ezekiel say, oh, Lord God? Does anybody remember what that, that is about? It's when he's totally bummed out, remember, or freaked out. Remember when God says, I want you to eat some manure. Oh, Lord God. That's what he always says. Every time Ezekiel says that, it's because he's kind of, it's like an exclamation, but what? Are you kidding? So all the stuff that he's hearing and speaking to these elders of Israel, at the end of it, he's like, oh, Lord God. And they're saying, does he speak in parables? Like, what's he talking about? Um, that's the idea. So in chapter 21, we're gonna see some other pictures, uh, specifically the picture of the sword. And we'll pick that up next week. Uh, let's close with prayer. Lord, I pray that we'd have the same heart and the same mind as Ezekiel, who was just there to present your word, even if it was difficult, even when it was unappreciated or even ignored. But he nonetheless spoke the truth. Lord, I pray that we'd be people who are about your truth, that we wouldn't be duped by this world's messages and ways. Lord, I pray that we wouldn't try to double dip into the world and into your kingdom. Lord, help us to be all about you, Whatever we do, like Colossians 3, 23, may we do it heartily as unto you and not unto men. Help us, Lord, not to move in the fear of man, but, but Lord, may we have that healthy fear of God that we so desperately need. Lord, I pray that you'd convict us where we need to sharpen up and walk with you. Um, Lord, I pray that you'd confirm the things we're doing well. And Lord, I pray that, that our sins wouldn't separate us. Lord, we're so thankful for the forgiveness of sin and the blood of, that was shed on the cross, that we are declared righteous, that no longer by keeping of Sabbaths or making sacrifices and oblations do we have right relationship with you, but through your, your son, Jesus. Lord, that redemptive work, how thankful we've been restored, Lord, to good standing with you because of your mercy and your grace. So Lord, help us to just walk with you. I pray your blessing upon these, your people who've taken this time on this Wednesday night to study these scriptures. Bless them. May it bring good fruit in their lives, we pray in Jesus' name, amen.